James chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, you say, here, you sit here in this good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or, or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I'm going to attempt to cover 13 verses today. That is a bit of a sprint record, if I do say so myself. Normally, I get bogged down in, in just a couple. So here we go. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We have an indictment. He starts off with an indictment. There are charges that are being levied against us or against the churches that he's writing to. Apparently, there is a problem brewing in the churches. Remember, James is writing to the Jews of the, the, the dispersion who are spread out. So he's writing to Christian believers who are not in Jerusalem. They're spread out, and there's, there's a, a problem brewing that is, he's gotten word of it, and he needs to address it. In fact, it's pretty interesting if you think about it. Most of the New Testament is written in order to address problems, not out there, <laughs> but right here, to address problems in the church. There's a problem brewing in the church, and here James addresses a specific problem problem. In fact, he addresses a problem, and the way he gives an example of it is an example in the church. So he's talking to believers. He says, you guys are showing partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If you have a King James Version, it says, uh, Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. So James says, you can't call yourselves Christians. You, you, can't, you can't hold the faith of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, and show partiality. You just, you just can't do it. You can't continue to show partiality and be a respecter of persons and have the faith 
of our Lord Jesus. In verse 9, he says, If you show partiality, then you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's, that's pretty spot on. So that's a pretty big deal. So that's something, partiality, something that we want to avoid. We want to steer clear of that. Would you agree? Can I get someone? Amen. Very good. Amen. Brother Dub's not here this morning, so you're going to have to fill in. All right? Well, he's out. He's here, but he's, he's doing an errand. So here's, James tells us, he says, don't show partiality. So we want to steer clear of that because it's a big deal. So it, it, it bears to reason that we need to know what it is we're supposed to steer clear of. What is this showing partiality? And the real world example that he gives us happens in churches all the time, and he gives an example in the church. Verses 2 and 3, he gets into it. He says, for, now, what is it there for? So we back up to verse 1. He said, don't show partiality. So now we know he's, he's about to talk about partiality. So he says, for, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. Now, now we got two different people. Right? There are two distinctives in this example that, that James gives. Two different men. There's something very different between them. One of them has fine clothing and a gold ring. The other is wearing shabby clothing, and presumably he does not have a gold ring. That's it. That's all we know. We don't know any more about these two men. We don't know who they voted for. We don't know what side of the town they live on. We don't know what they do for a living. We don't know what either one of them said to his wife before coming to church, how he treated his children before coming in the door. We certainly don't know their heart. We don't know either of them are saved. What we know is that one has money, or at least he appears to have money, and the other does not. That's the distinction that we're given. And James says, verse 3, If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, Oh, you sit here in this good place. While you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit here at my feet. So what's, what's happening there? What is James describing? One person's being given special treatment, preferential treatment. He's being shown partiality and the other one is being dismissed. You stand over there. Even being subjected to the humiliation of subordination. You sit at my feet, which is something they would tell to their slaves or their servants. So these two men being treated very differently based solely on the basis that one appears to have money and the other does not. One's being shown honor because of his possessions and one is being dishonored because of the lack of possessions. Okay, so, so that's the example that James gives. That's the example. When he says, don't show partiality, he says, this is what partiality looks like. Is, is someone's wealth or their lack of wealth, is that a measure of their human worth? What about... Is someone's wealth or lack of wealth a measure of whether or not they are living a life that is pleasing to the Lord? I mean, the obvious answer is no, and you all get a, a, a check mark for that. You did good. The obvious answer is no. 
I mean, it, <laughs> in a nutshell, that's kind of what 40 different, 40 some odd chapters in Job was about, right? I mean, we got a lot of discourse on, on that very subject. So what, what's going on here is that people are being treated differently. They're being regarded with varying levels of respect based on something that should not be the basis of how we treat them. Now, there are reasons why we might regard someone differently than we would do another. You know, we, we regard Christian brothers differently than we regard the lost. There's a different kind of love and a different call to action for Christian brothers than there is for, for the lost. But, but something like riches, something that should not be the basis of, of us regarding, James says, don't do it. And here's what he says about it, verse 4. Have you not then made distinction? So when you, when you regard the wealthy person well and the poor person poorly, he says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So, so he condemns this way of thinking. He says, it's evil. It's wicked. If you're a Christian... That's as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, you cannot go about treating people differently based on things like money or influence. And I say influence because he said that the man with the fine clothing had a gold ring. And that's usually a symbol of power back in that day when James was, was alive. That was usually a symbol of power or authority, and that was the ring that they used to stamp their seal or something along those lines. So money or influence, I think, is what James is, is getting at in his example there. So there are some arguments that he gives us. Why is it evil? Why is it wicked? Why is it to your peril that, that you treat people with partiality? Why is it better that we, that we should go and regard everyone the same with, as, as image bearers of God, as, as created in His image, loving them as we love ourselves? I've drawn three reasons out, and I'm going to give them to you. Are you okay with that? All right, good deal. You're a captive audience. Why, why not? I can say what I want to. I guess you could get up and walk out if you had to. Um, <laughs> number one, if this gets too painful, I don't know. Number one, treating people with partiality is incompatible with Christianity and the glory of Christ. Now, I've already mentioned it uh, very early on, but I just want to emphasize the point. James makes it very clear that showing partiality like this is not compatible with holding the faith of Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. That's verse 1. The very first thing out of the, out of the gate that we said, the language that he uses is, as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, that's there for a reason. He said, don't show partiality. Now we know he's talking to Christians as you hold faith in the Lord Jesus. Non-Christians don't hold faith in the Lord Jesus. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot show partiality as you hold faith in the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. And listen, don't, don't miss the emphasis that James puts at the end. He could have just said, in the Lord Jesus. But he didn't stop there. He emphasized who he is to the person who holds faith in him. He is the Lord of glory. Now, the English doesn't, doesn't do really good here. Let's, let's get down into some Greek grammar. And if you dig down into the, the Greek grammar a bit, you come away with the understanding that this isn't just some attribution of praise. James isn't saying, look at the Lord, He is glorious. What he's doing is he's making an observation about Jesus' state of being. 
That's, that's the grammatical construction. It's a state of being. The Lord who is glory. He is glory. James isn't saying, oh, oh, God, look how glorious he is. He's isn't attributing some ascription of praise. He is describing God, who he is. If, if you want to find a definition of glory, what, is it, what does glory mean? What does glory look like? How does glory behave? What does glory entail? James would say, look at Jesus. He's a Lord of glory. Not the Lord over glory, not the Lord in glory, but the Lord of glory. He is glory. Glory is God. And don't, don't get the order out of don't get it out of order either. God is not Lord because He's glorious. If that were the case, anybody could be Lord. Just accumulate enough glory, enough praise. No, He's glorious because He is Lord. Treating people poorly just because they're poor, or treating them well just because they're rich, denies the glory of Christ's lordship. And I'm going to show you how I get that, okay? Verse 5 in chapter 2, James says, Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? Now, now you may be thinking, Jeff, I I don't see how that has anything to do with God's glory. I don't see the word there. I don't see it in the text. What do you mean? How are you getting that? James, like I've told you before, Scripture is not written in a vacuum. James is not writing to people without any knowledge of any context of Old Testament text. None of the biblical writers do. It's one book written by one spirit by many authors. Right? So James, he knows. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them if I don't know what to do. He said, uh, he quoted Psalm 22. Um, uh, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you turned your... Why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. He's quoting Scripture. The New Testament does it all the time. Now, James is not quoting Scripture, but he's certainly emphasizing a point from the Old Testament, Psalm 113. Now, there are other Psalms that that have the very similar language, but I'm going to focus on this one because I don't want to do all of them. I don't have time. So, he says, Psalm 113, beginning in verse 1, the psalmist is writing, he's, he's giving praise to the Lord. Now, this is what giving praise looks like. He's, in verse 1, he says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from the time, from this time and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. That's, that's giving praise to the Lord. And then verse 4, something changes. He's no longer ascribing, now he's describing. He's not ascribing, he's describing. So verse 4, he says, where have I got it? He says, the Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. And then the rest of the psalm, the rest of 113, is about describing the glory of God who is to be praised, who is ascribed praise in verses 1 through 3, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same sun. Verse 5, he says, Who is like our God who is seated on high? Who is like this glorious God? God is glorious. He is the Lord of glory. Who is like our God? Let, let me show you what glory looks like. That, this is what he's doing. All right, Let me show you what this looks like to be God who sits in glory. Who is like our God who is seated on high? And who looks down, far down on the heavens and the earth? Verse 7 is is where we're headed, verse 7 and 8. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, 
with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her a joyous mother of children. Now praise the Lord because of his glory. What did his glory look like? How is it on display here? He's lifting the poor and making them to sit with princes. It's on display in many ways, particularly, verse 7 and 8, to the poor because he elevates the poor and makes them to sit with princes. The Lord is to be praised for his glory. He makes the poor, look at his glory. He makes the poor to sit with princes. Look at the splendor of his glory. Praise God for that. Isn't that exactly what James said in verse 5? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Don't misunderstand. James is not saying that the poor are heirs of the kingdom and are chosen by virtue of being poor. That would be a violation of the principle that he just outlined with showing partiality. The kingdom is promised to those who love God. And God's glory is displayed in that promise in that He is not partial about who gets it. The only requirement is your heart, that you love the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're rich. That promise is for the rich. It's promises for the poor. It's for the young. It's for the old. It's for men and for women. It's for the Jew and for the Greek. The slave and the master. It's for God does not show partiality. That's Romans 2.11. His promises to the rich and to the pure, poor, to the Jew, to the Greek, to the high, to the low, are just and not arbitrary. Back in James, he continues in verse 6. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. So we just saw how God's glory is on display in the Psalms by how he lifts the poor and makes them to sit with princes. James just said, does not God choose the poor to make them rich in faith and give them a kingdom? He says, you, so God's honored them. God has shown them honor. Now you have dishonored what God has honored. He's exalted believers who are poor and lowly by making them rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom. That's God's glory on display. Remember way back in chapter 1, verse 9, James said, let the lowly brother exalt in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother rejoice in in his exaltation. It's because God's glory is on display in making him, lifting him up and making him to sit with princes, giving him a kingdom. Not because he is rich, not because he deserves it, but because he doesn't deserve it, because he is poor and lowly. See, no one in James' time would have been shocked to hear that the rich go to heaven or that the favor of the Lord is upon the wealthy. That, that tracks right along with, with the societal thinking, with the Pharisaic thinking, that as long as things are going well for you, you are in the Lord's favor. Job's comforters were telling the same thing. Well, if you just act right, this wouldn't be happening to you, Job. If the Lord really, if you were, if you were doing right by God, you must not be a righteous man because you were doing right by God, none of this would have happened to you. That's exactly what the prosperity gospel preaches. The favor of the Lord must be upon you because you're so wealthy. If you want wealth, then, then you have to curry the favor of the Lord. And that the favor of the Lord means riches 
and wealth. If you're not swimming in money, then it's because your faith is too small. There's something wrong with you're not doing something right. You, you haven't sown the right seed to reap your financial harvest. I, I don't see any language in Scripture about a financial harvest. I see language about harvesting souls. It's a damnable heresy. And it's taken straight out of the mouth of the Pharisees that the Scripture calls a brood of vipers. Number two, the folly of partiality is that it usually backfires. Continuing in verse 6, James says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? And then in verse 7, he adds, Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, just like James didn't, is not saying about the poor that they are, uh, inherit the kingdom of heaven because they are poor, he's not saying that rich people are evil because they are rich. He's not condemning wealth for the sake of wealth. What he is condemning is the attitudes and behaviors that have a tendency to accompany the accumulation of wealth. The rich in James' day, they were able to curry favor and to buy favor in the court system. They were able to, to pay off uh, you know, employees and, and uh, uh, criminals. and They could just curry favor and, and buy power and influence to get what they wanted. And in this way, they oppressed the poor. They never lost a court case because they could just buy the judge. Now that, that, that still goes on today. That still goes on today. We, we have things, we accumulate things, and we have uh, uh, resources that we use for our benefit. There's nothing wrong with using resources for your benefit, but there is something wrong with the way in which we use them. They need to be, it needs to be done in a just way. And James is crying out against an unjust way of using resources. But that's not even his main point. I mean, it, the, he's not trying to make a point about rich versus poor. His point is to show how foolish it is to be drawn in and drawn to someone, to favor someone just because of something as foolish as money, as arbitrary as money, something as disconnected from their character as money. You know, wicked people have money, righteous people have money. It's not connected to character. The wicked will prosper. Boy, we see that all the time. But the righteous will also prosper. We see that all the time as well. So wealth isn't connected to, to character. That's what James says. It's foolish for you to, to judge someone based on something as arbitrary as wealth. Number three, you cannot love your neighbor as you love yourself and show partiality. Well, that's a big one, because Jesus said that's the second great commandment. You've, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with everything you got. The second one's like unto it. It's just like, it's right up there with the first one, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 8 and 9, we, we get the most direct condemnation of partiality. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, verse 8, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. But if you show partiality... 
You're committing sin and are convict, convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, do you see that love your neighbor as yourself is contrasted over against show partiality? That there's a great, big, inescapable but between them. So he, there's, there's two contrasts here. Number one, loving your neighbor as yourself fulfills the royal law, but showing partiality transgresses the law. Number two, loving your neighbor as yourself is doing well, but showing partiality is sinning. Now, earlier, James called it evil. He said, have you not become judges with wicked thoughts, evil thoughts? So I take this that, to mean that James is saying you cannot love your neighbor as yourself and show partiality. Those things are incompatible. Just like you can't show partiality and hold the faith of Jesus as the Lord of glory. And that brings me to what I think James's whole point is in this, this group of this little part of his letter here, and that's in verse 12. James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Which means, in a nutshell, live as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Act, speak, live as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. That's an important point. But the thing is, James does not define what the law of liberty is. What does the law of liberty mean? Now, he does mention it earlier. You remember when he talks about the hearers and the doers, and he says that the one who, who hears the law and does the law, he is the one who has looked into the perfect law, which James calls the law of liberty, the perfect law, and perseveres. So he, he treats it as if it's kind of common knowledge, like Christian churches should just know what the law of liberty is, provided they've been properly taught. So if we approach it as, as common knowledge and look at it as something that churches should know, then we'll go to the breadth of Scripture. We'll go to other places and see what, what does it say similarly that can give us a clue. And I think we can find a clue from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5. Galatians 5.13, he uses similar language that, that we'll draw from. So in verse 13 of Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. You're called to freedom. Now James says you live under the law of liberty. Paul says you're called to freedom. There's similar language, freedom and liberty. So here's how Paul frames that call, what it means to be called to freedom. He says only do not use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So use your freedom not as an excuse to sin more, but use your freedom to serve more through love. So, so we're called to freedom, which is, according to Apostle Paul, is to serve one another through love. And that, that sounds a lot like what James said. He said, if, if you love, if you fulfill the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. You do good. Christians are free. We've been given freedom in Christ. We are free from the bondage and the condemnation of sin and death. We no longer have to live as if we are condemned under sin. But we've been given liberty from that condemnation in Jesus Christ. Paul says that that liberty manifests itself in love for one another. Not in lawlessness, 
not in more sin. Do you, you remember in Romans 5, Paul said, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. What shall we say then? Shall we continue sinning so that grace can abound? Paul said, God forbid. No. Our freedom, our liberty, does not release us from guilt so that we can continue sinning. It releases us from guilt so that we can serve in love. And it seems to me that that's what both James and Paul would say is the natural fruit of loving your neighbor as yourself or serving through love. The natural fruit of living under the law of liberty or the law of love, if you want to call it, is that we don't show partiality, that we serve through love. The law that governs us Christians is the law of liberty. Now, here's a very familiar text to you, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul gives us a, a very good description of what it means, what the law of love looks like, the law of liberty. Verse 4, he says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices with truth. Boy, that's a, that's a big one because they'll try to twist you right there and try to tell you that if you don't rejoice with me in my wrongdoing, you're not loving me. And Paul says love does not, this is the law of liberty, the law of love. The love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in truth. I'll get off that soapbox. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So the law of love, that's the law of liberty. This, that's what it is. That's what Paul just described. We are to live as ones who will be judged by that law. So, have you been patient and kind? Have you been arrogant or boastful or rude? Do you rejoice in wrongdoing or do you rejoice in the truth? James drives it home in his final argument in, in verse 13. He says, live, live as ones who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, the law of liberty demands love for our neighbor. It is not loving to our neighbor to treat them poorly for arbitrary reasons. And James equates that to having a merciless heart. It is not mercy to treat people poorly simply because they are poor or to treat people well simply because they have money. That is a person who has a merciless heart. And he warns us that if we, if we show partiality in this way, we're not showing mercy. That's a really big deal. Because of what he said, you will not be given mercy if you don't show mercy. Remember what Jesus said when he said, uh, judge not lest you be judged? The reason that he gave for that was that with the same measure that you judge, you will be measured. So you're going to... You, you, the idea wasn't never make judgments. The idea was be careful how you judge. And that's what James says. We, we need to live under a law of, of mercy, the law of love, the law of liberty when we make our judgments regarding people. 
I'm going to conclude with this thought. It's not just money. I want you to walk away thinking that money and power are the only things that we are tempted to show partiality over. Or worse yet, that it's only those things that we are told not to show partiality over. Do you think that James is trying to limit our notion of what it means to show partiality to strictly matters of wealth and poverty? You think that's his goal, is to try to limit, to try to put a pin on it? I think he wants to put a pin on it, but he's not trying to zero, laser focus, this is it and nothing else. What he's doing is, is, is he's explaining how it has no place in the Christian heart. This kind of partiality. That's what he's saying. And he's using money and wealth and poverty as an example. He linked it to, to loving our neighbor as ourselves, which means that we, there is a, a whole range of other reasons that we are tempted to show partiality over. Reasons completely unrelated to wealth and, and poverty. Partiality comes in, in many forms. Regarding someone poorly because of, of the color of their skin or their national heritage. Regarding them poorly because they're a woman. Men, you know, women have something to offer. I mean, they, they, they do. <laughs> we should regard them well. Regarding someone poorly because they're a child. Remember what happened when, when the children were wanting to come to Jesus and the disciples were like, Shoo, go away. Shoo, go away. You're bothering him. What did Jesus say? Stop that. Suffer not the little ones to come to me. Why? Because he's a God that doesn't show partiality. Every life is precious to him. The issue of partiality, it, it can be... It's like one of those... We've been going through the commandments on Wednesday nights, and there are some commandments that really hit, right? Like, don't murder. Boy, that's a big one. Then there are others that, you know, not so much. Don't covet. We haven't covered that one yet, but we will. Or, or don't tell lies, you know. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's one of those. It's okay. You know, they just... And then we come to something like partiality, and we think, that's no big deal. Not a big deal. It's a big deal. Look at the language James uses about judgment, and you can't hold faith. That's, that's a pretty big deal, because it's indicative and, and, and demonstrative of whether or not we are saved, how we treat others, whether or not we, we treat them justly, with, with regard for their dignity. It's a big deal in our lives. I think we need to do continuous work in our hearts humbling ourselves through prayer, washing ourselves with the water of the Word, examining our motives behind why we regard certain people the way we do. You, you have them. You have them. I'm, I have them, so I know you have them. I'm not, there's nothing unique about me. I'm not special. You have them. You have people that you're just like, mm, I just don't like. And, and, and there, there are groups of people that, that, that they'll fit into that group, and you're like, I'm just not real comfortable. I don't want to, you know... I mean, it's all kind of prejudices that we were brought up with, things from our past experiences. I'll give you an example from my, my personal life. I'm not very comfortable around athletic people. I, 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 I just not. You know, the, the jocks from school, um, they weren't my people. I was a brain guy, and they were a brawn guys. And I, I always looked down my nose at them. I thought I, I could 
I'll swim circles around you in a, a debate. But they would pummel me in a real fight. You know, <laughs> it's just not my, we just couldn't relate. I couldn't relate to them. I couldn't, couldn't have conversations with them. It's just something that would, and so I regarded them differently. It had nothing to do with whether wealth or influence, right? But it was still partiality on my part, right? So there's, the sin of partiality can come up all kinds of ways. The sin of partiality will creep up in places you don't know it. So don't tune this out. That's what I'm saying. That's the whole point. Don't sit there like, yeah, I got this. Because you don't. Because you don't. We want to speak, James says, and act as ones who are being judged under the law of liberty. And that means we must love. That's what it means. All right. I'm going to let you go. Father God, we love you. We praise you. I thank you for your word. I pray that it has been as convicting for some as it has for me. Lord, I thank you that you have given us this day, and I thank you for the daily bread that we are about to eat and for the hands that have prepared it. I pray that you go with us in fellowship as we break bread one with another. Let us experience the joy that we have in the bonds of peace in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. God bless you all. Lunch is served. I think they're ready, so if not, we'll just wait a little bit.